Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Over the past few years, thanks in large part to the short experimental documentary by Reese Ernst, the publication of Bryce Smith's excellent biography, and most recently, Zach Ozma and Ellis Martin's edited collection of his diaries, there has been an explosion of interest in the life of white gay trans man Lou Sullivan. Sullivan is a key figure in the emergence of strongly networked communities of trans men, as well as a pioneer in the fight for the rights of gay trans men, whose importance shouldn't be understated. But as we have seen on OFTV, Lou Sullivan certainly wasn't the first well-known FTM activist in the 20th century. His work was made possible by a number of men who came right before him, men who he considered his mentors and heroes, including my old friend Rupert Raj, a biracial, bisexual Canadian who amassed the network that Lou eventually took over, and another lesser-known figure from the 1970s who is the star of tonight's show. As the employment discrimination case of the recently departed Amy Stevens winds its way through the Supreme Court in the United States, now is a great time to look back at one of the very first court battles against anti-trans employment discrimination. In a time when few, even within the trans community, recognize the lives of trans men, tonight's hero stood up publicly to demand his right to work. So sit back and listen as OFTV tells the story of Teacher of the Year, Steve Dane. This may come as a shock to you, but Steve Dane was always into sports. Both of his parents were athletes, but as you can imagine, the 1940s and 50s were not a great time to be into sports if you were female assigned at birth. I'll spare you the details. Suffice it to say that Steve spent his teen years in Oakland, California depressed, filled with the belief that he was a superior player to all the halfbacks he watched on the field. Just as an aside, can you believe that I know what a halfback is? I cannot. Steve's uncle owned a gay bar in the Bay Area, and somehow this turned into a gripping panic for Steve. He knew somehow he was different, and was terrified that any sign might be confirmation that he was gay. He avoided each female friend who seemed to get a little too close, drawn in, no doubt, by what he described as his cross-characteristics, always more muscled, hairier, and masculine than those around him. He threw himself into a series of tame relationships with the most feminine boys he could find. These timid, mousy boys could barely muster up the courage to kiss Steve, let alone initiate sex, and in retrospect, Steve recognized that their femininity complemented his masculinity in ways that made him feel good. It wasn't until he was 25 that Steve managed to have sex. After experiencing sexual arousal for the first time with a woman who expressed interest in him in the mid-1960s, Steve jumped into bed with a man. 
as he later described the encounter to the Berkeley Barb. Quote, And so I did enjoy it, and I didn't have much to do with this fellow after that. We saw each other, but we were just kind of buddy-buddy. A few years later, Steve was becoming aware that he had some issues with his sexual identity. But then things changed suddenly. Steve fell completely in love, having never done so before with a handsome engineer. They quickly married in January 1974. Steve pushed himself to become the ideal of a woman. Quote, I was adopting the typical role of what I would want to do if I were a woman for a man, get it? Cook his breakfast and make his lunches and do all the things that I would do. In some ways, Steve was treating this role shift as a sort of test. Could he become a woman and resolve the decades of confusion he'd felt about his body? He says his husband was aware that they spoke of this sexual identity problem. But ultimately, Steve couldn't hold it up. The relationship quickly fell apart and they broke up that same summer, remaining friends. By the next year, Steve was looking for a solution. Quote, In the summer of 75, I read this article in Cosmopolitan about women who dare to become men. And I started to read that and realized that Stanford University had a program for transsexuals. I said, my God, Stanford's got it, and it's half an hour from me. I want to go over and have my chromosomes analyzed. It's right across the bay. By the end of the summer, Steve had his first appointment at the gender dysphoria program at Stanford University. The cis doctors were dazzled by Steve's muscled physique. Back then, having an ability to pass or what they considered to be significant cross-sex characteristics even before medical transition was considered an important influence on the decision-making of gatekeepers, which of course we now understand to be deeply problematic. Dr. Donald Loeb started Steve up on hormones immediately, and within four weeks, Steve claims, he grew a full beard. But undergoing a sex change in 1975 while teaching at a public school in Emeryville, Steve knew it wasn't a tenable position. He quickly took medical leave that December, promising to return to school by the end of June, when teaching assignments for the next year are typically made. On leave, Steve spent his time going out, marveling at his ability to move through the world, both because he now passed completely, and because, as he related it, it was like an aching tooth had finally been pulled. He moved through the world with an ease he had never known. He described the feeling as euphoria. How you was where you could be found Told them you were living downtown Driving all the old men crazy plan came together. He would stay Steve. This experiment had worked. He would get top surgery, leave his school, withdraw his teacher's retirement funds, and live off that until he could get a job as a man at another school the following year. Right before Steve had surgery on May 11, 1976, he met with then school superintendent John Baker to inform him of the situation. Baker took it to the school board, and on May 27th, Steve attended a closed meeting of the board with Baker. 
He was shocked to find that, in fact, the school board wanted him to stay. He was quite a beloved teacher among his pupils and colleagues. The board encouraged him to simply apply for a different position at the same school for the following semester. Unfortunately, though Steve wanted all of it kept quite quiet, inevitably parents got word of the news. A new superintendent, Louis Stommel, was brought in. The Berkeley Barb in November 1976 described Stommel as a, quote, know-nothing conservative who refuses to even talk to the press. Stommel would not even consider the possibility of Steve's return. By August, Steve got himself a lawyer. Palo Alto-based Larry Sleazer told him to attend the teachers-as-usual September 2nd back-to-school orientation day. But when Steve showed up, Stommel blocked his entrance and made a citizen's arrest, claiming that Steve was trespassing. This charge was thrown out immediately, as Steve was still a certified school employee, but not before Steve was dragged down to the police station and fingerprinted. Steve continued to fight. By October, a writ of mandate forced the school board to either rehire him or suspend him. And under the influence of Stommel, on October 18th, Steve Dane was suspended without pay. A vote of teachers was held with 33 in favor of Steve and only two opposed. Undeterred by this overwhelming support for Steve, Stommel hired a private investigator to try to dig up dirt on Steve's life. But one wonders what dirt a person could find. By all accounts, Steve was a beloved gym teacher who lived a fairly chaste life at that point. He had completed a master's and was finishing up a PhD at that time at Berkeley. He had several dogs, his favorite breed being the Great Dane, an animal that was larger than his five foot four inch stature. And he also had a pet raccoon. Long-time listeners will remember FTM multimillionaire Reed Erickson's Pet Leopard Henry. Slightly odd pet choices have a long lineage in the history of transmasculinity, it seems. We'll return to this in a second. Stommel cooked up a new strategy for firing Steve. That Steve's medical leave during his transition had defrauded the taxpayers. The media was all too happy to jump on the story, with an emboldened Stommel finally giving interviews. How could we have him or her teaching the kids? Let's say it. It has a beard and a mastectomy. It's taking male hormones. Does it have other male equipment? Would it go through the door marked man or one marked woman? Was I to put one marked Dane? Stommel spat. Mark me, if it wins, all the sexual weirdos will be coming out of the closets across the land and demanding teaching jobs. Kids can't handle stuff like this. They don't have the sophistication. Some parents disagreed. In particular, Steve found strong support from black women teachers in the local teachers' association. One teacher is quoted, but unfortunately not named, and somewhat racistly described, to be honest, in an article for The Observer magazine as saying, quote, It's 1978, and we ought to look on this as a new educational opportunity. The kids here are smarter than a lot of the adults. They're sophisticated, believe me. Most of them accepted Steve. 
Steve had by now launched a legal fight, but it quickly drained his resources. He had to sell his car and take a job in construction. By 1978, he was giving up hope of winning as hearings dragged through the court like molasses. Media attention had also turned some parents against him, almost leading to blows at some of the public meetings held on the topic. Stommel had found a winning strategy in the claim that Steve had unlawfully taken medical leave for transsexualism. Though the State Commission on Professional Conduct reversed the district's decision to fire Steve, they were swayed by the argument around medical leave and Steve lost his case initially. Stommel had conducted an effective disinformation campaign, creating allegations that Steve had taken students on unauthorized field trips to his home, where he, quote, gave lectures on sex changes to them. Steve denied any wrongdoing. Steve eventually won his salary on appeal, plus the costs of the lawsuit and attorney fees. Still, he was barred from teaching at Emory. This fight was really the first shot in what would become Anita Bryant's Prop 6, a proposition aimed at restricting LGBT people from teaching in schools. Though he was utterly depleted by the fight, Steve continued to fight for his community. Alongside figures like Harvey Milk, Steve was vocal in his opposition to Prop 6. He also began mentoring a young Lou Sullivan, who had reached out after reading the press coverage of Steve's case. Throughout the 1980s, Steve would continue to mentor young trans men, including Jameson Green. My friend, trans poet and memoirist Maxwell Filario described meeting him back then. Quote, Later, I would meet Steve Dane. Steve had been Lou's hero. In those days, most trans men in the Bay Area went off on a pilgrimage to meet him as soon as we entered medical transition. Lou had met Steve years before he began his transition, and Jameson Green would meet him a short time before I did. It was nearly a ritual, a rite of passage to meet with Steve. There were no trans men that we knew of who had come before him. Mario Martino was on the East Coast, living in safe obscurity, although some were in communication with him, and Rupert Raj was in Canada. Steve was nearby and our most visible example, and someone who each of us hoped would confer wisdom and a kind of blessing or validation. I think we were all a bit awestruck, and Steve didn't let us down. I know he didn't let me down. I still remember meeting him in Union City. He picked me up from BART, and I was taken with his easy and total masculinity. He was here's wit and handsome, confident and kind. He was sensitive to each question I asked, and his answers would influence me for the entirety of my transition. In 1985, Steve appeared in what was then a groundbreaking HBO documentary. Directed by Lee Grant, What's My Sex is one of the few early trans documentaries to include the lives of trans men. Steve is one of two trans men followed in the documentary. Most of us don't question our sexual identity. We know whether we're male or female. For others, it's not so simple. The dated but historic film is currently available on Vimeo if you'd like to rent it. Here's a short clip of Steve. This is an album of the publicity 
That was written up over their public Even though he had been named Teacher of the Year, Stephen lost his job in 1977 because he chose to have surgery. He had to defend himself in court for almost four years. Although the court declared him a fit teacher, no one would hire him again. Basically, it started out that uh, I was suspended on immoral charges, and uh, I was going to withdraw from my teaching position. What did you teach? Physical education. I taught grades 7 through 12. And I was going to withdraw from that school and go to another area and teach. And uh, I was encouraged to return by the school board and get reassigned. And we changed superintendents at that time. And uh, he, along with, I'm sure, some people in the district themselves who couldn't deal with this, did everything they could to uh, make it difficult for me, and I did. That same year, 1985, Steve launched a new career, going to school to become a chiropractor. In 1988, he graduated from Life Chiropractic College West with a Doctor of Chiropractic degree. He launched a small and successful practice. Eventually, he was able to return to teaching at Life Chiropractic College West and Ohlone College. He later married his wife, Robin, through whom he had two stepdaughters. Throughout his life, Steve continued to collect misfit pets, earning himself the nickname Dr. Doolittle, according to his obituary in the East Bay Times. Over the years, he had not just a variety of dogs and a raccoon, but also rabbits, an iguana, rats, fish, pot-bellied pigs, birds, and cats. In 2006, he earned his Doctor of Naturopathy degree. Steve's health had been rough for some time, though. In 2001, he'd been diagnosed with breast cancer, It had returned in 2004 and a third time in the summer of 2007. Unfortunately, this proved fatal. On October 10th, 2007, surrounded by his family, Steve Dane passed away at the age of 68. But Steve's story does not end there. In addition to the indelible mark he left on the lives of so many trans men in the Bay Area during the 1980s and 90s, Recently, Steve's story has come back into the spotlight. In 2019, Emory High School, the school from which Steve was both voted Teacher of the Year and later fired over his transition, entered into a debate over the naming of their new gym and rec center. Central in a list of celebrities and teachers was none other than beloved gym teacher Steve Dane. The proposal was brought forward by Jack Asher, a gender studies prof at Steve's alma mater, UC Berkeley, who previously served on Emeryville City Council. Then Vice Mayor of Emeryville, Christian Patz, agreed, feeling that it would send the right message. How far we've come since 1976. Unfortunately, just before Pride 2019, the school board decided unanimously to name the building after a more recently passed former teacher, Elio Abrami, citing the less controversial nature of the pick during what was described as a very tense meeting. Christian Patz, now mayor of Emeryville, however, has taken matters into his own hands. On May 20th, 2020, it was announced that Patz had gotten the city council to agree to rename the street in front of Emory High School after Steve Dane. The decision still needs to go through one more vote and then the changing of the street sign, but if it does go through, this would be quite a fitting tribute to a teacher who fought so hard for his right to teach. 
Steve Dane's battle is one of the earliest and most public fights against anti-trans employment discrimination in the United States, and, in fact, the world. It transformed him into an activist, and he became, for many years, a key figure in the emergence of the FTM community as we know it today. As the U.S. Supreme Court weighs a similar case this summer, and as trans teachers come under attack by TERFs in the United Kingdom and abroad, Steve's story only grows in relevance for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter, or follow OFTV at OFTV Podcast. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. <laughs>